Hey, I guess Hi. my D my default, I guess it's no video. That's funny. Okay. Okay. Sorry, just uh I'm aware I'm being ridiculous. I just don't want to do unnecessary work. <laughs> Sorry. All good. Okay. Um yeah, so you're upside, you're sideways now. Oh, <laughs> it does that sometimes. There we go. There we go. Okay. Um, how do you want to do this? I don't know. Okay. Doesn't. It's weird because I actually feel like we're like about to go live on air. You know, <laughs> we gotta figure it out. Uh, I'm really over caffeinated right now. I, I wish I was. I'm like, I'm, you know, where you're like under it, and you're trying to get there, <laughs> but it's you're trying to peak, and it's just not working. <laughs> it's just not a, wow, we sound like drug addicts. Okay. <laughs> oh my my favorite, like one of my absolute favorite memories that Arthur is someone like being like just can't run the newspaper. Like, they're a drug addict, and you being like, drug addict? I'm not cool enough to be a drug addict. Which is like, in a year since, I'm like, is that super problematic? And generally, I just think it's really funny. <laughs> it's just, it was like, funny. Like, you think I'm cool enough to order drugs all the time from hip people? Are you kidding me? I like, I know. Out when I sent a text, like, once. <laughs> I know, it's just, I, the outrage just, like, flew out of my mouth without even thinking, and then it's just funny that that's what I was upset about. What? <laughs> just the inaccuracy. The inaccuracy. The inaccuracy. <laughs> oh my goodness. Like, you think I could handle this as a regular thing? <laughs> like, fuck. Sorry, we can swear, I don't know. Oh, I don't know either. I mean, I'm sure I feel like you editing. I think we're gonna swear a lot. Um, like, don't they swear on chat radio? I don't remember, to be quite honest. I don't remember anything. This is gonna be <laughs> uh, oh, I guess we should introduce ourselves. Oh, yeah. It's funny because okay. I'm just looking at your face and I'm like, hey, I'm Megan. <laughs> you, you might, we might have met like when we edited Arthur and lived together for five years. Um, and then, I don't know, for five years before the Arthur thing. Yeah. Uh, Definitely a first? record for Arthur editors. Oh yeah, like close friendship, editing, and then sharing a loving home. Love, like <laughs> platonic life partners. Um, and so many other people were like such haters. Like you guys are gonna break up, they're gonna fall apart. Like just such like a doomsday response. <laughs> I also just love that. <laughs> um, it's <laughs> such a weird laugh right now. Just that, like, we basically, like, on the internet at least, pretended we were in a relationship, and then <laughs> he was always, like, so pissed at you because he thought that you would be the reason I would never find love. <laughs> Damn, Ellie. Damn. Hated me. Oh, he hated me. He hated Yeah, he just hated that I was cock-blocking. <laughs> um, yes, so, I'm Megan Kelly. Um... I thank you, Jill Stavely, for emailing me. Uh, yeah, so I was the Arthur editor from 20, or sorry, Arthur co-editor <laughs> <laughs> from um, 2010 to 2011. 
And that was my, nope, that was not my last year at Trent. I was at Trent for like six years, so it's kind of hard. But before I was Arthur editor, I was also um, vice president of the TCSA, the student union. And I was there for three years and then somehow ended up at Arthur. Uh, I guess there's a story there, but I'll leave that. <laughs> sorry, sorry, this is so long. Uh, let's just cut this. <laughs> okay. Megan, what did you Maybe say? Maybe you should describe me. <laughs> okay. I, I do remember our first conversation, can you? Mm, probably we were me. We were, at, <laughs> we were at a, a bizarre house party at that, that Water Street house that I, yeah. had a I had a graduate once upon a time. Um, yeah, I think everyone did. Yeah, I think so. And uh, I ran into you on the stairs, and you said, nice dress, and I said, thanks. <laughs> that was wow, it. wow that it's was so shocking that I didn't remember that fascinating exchange. <laughs> and, like, I just remember it because seconds later, I passed by one of the bedrooms, and it was just, like, I didn't know that many bodies could fit in a bedroom. <laughs> like, there was no floor space. It was all hippies. And they were, including my brother, randomly in there, and they were all singing some improvised song that was oh my God. like, the motion of the ocean. <laughs> <laughs> and I just remember like, feeling, whoa, how did they do that? <laughs> and I just remember feeling, like, between your comment to, like, seconds later to seeing that, I just remember that feeling that I think happens a lot in Peterborough, like, <laughs> what am I doing here? <laughs> I also think, like, I didn't know that many bodies could fit in a bedroom is, like, the Trent University motto. <laughs> um, <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yeah, so I was an Arthur editor, and I was also super obsessively involved in the TCSA, which crashed spectacularly, but I like to think I made a positive mark, which may or may not be true, and I think I'm a rare TCSA-Arthur crossover, and that was, like, Oh, yeah. Ten years ago, um, or whatever, it doesn't matter. So I think I was supposed to explain, like, who I am now, which I think is very different than who I was ten years ago, but probably not. I just, I don't know, this is so weird to do right now because I'm actually going back to school in a month, and I haven't been in school school since undergrad like 10 years ago which is very strange right now to be reminiscing about Trent and Arthur and Peterborough yeah totally um especially because it's at like U of T like the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy European and Russian Affairs it's just like not a Trent thing <laughs> like, at all award-winning journalist Megan Kelly is enrolled at U of T in global whatever you just said. I mean, luckily it's not the monk school, but it's like under that name. So it actually is a weird ragtag humanities bunch, like remember, the vessel of like this neoliberal beast. So hopefully it'll be. Remember how bad you used to get? Whenever I refer to you as an award winning journalist. <laughs> Would I get mad? Maybe I just felt like an imposter. I think oh, it's funny. 
like literally that was the first article I ever wrote. So it was all downhill from there. I wrote a labor journalism for the, for the audience or probably our massive audience that's still tuning in. Um, I wrote a labor journalism article about a strike at a soap factory. And then it was actually not through Arthur, it was through the Ryerson Free Press. Oh yeah. Yeah, and then um, I won an award for it. And all these like Arthur journalists were so mad at me because it was like the first thing I'd ever done. And then I was runner up next year, but after that for another um, labor journalism award, but uh, then it was all downhill from there. <laughs> and, and Jess, who might you be? <laughs> uh, okay, so, uh, hi. <laughs> Sorry, I'm reading what I'm supposed to cover. Okay, uh, Jess Sash, uh, years as editor. Coincidentally, the same as Megan Kelly. Oh, <laughs> um, uh, yeah, the year 2010 to 2011, but, um, I had been involved in Arthur before that. Uh, I had a lot of jobs, a lot of different jobs with a lot of different uh, organizations during my time at Trent. I think Arthur was, well, I know Arthur was the longest relationship, but I think it ended up being my most favorite for a lot of reasons, uh, including like how democratically it, it, it tried to run, including like how like, editors were brought in. I just, I really liked that approach and uh, that kind of healthy turnover in a sense and like how it rewarded, you know, like the, the electing of editors was rewarded based on participation in the paper, which just, you know, changes year to year really. Um, but before that, um, I think, ooh, what year was that again? I don't remember, but uh, it was the, it, it was Evan Brock's first year because the two of us were hired, both hired as fortnightly recorders that year. I feel like that was like 2007, 2008. Because um, then the TCSA was the year following, uh, and then I got really sad and then disappeared from the school that year, but never resigned from the TCSA. <laughs> um, oh, they're going to come get you now. <laughs> I know. It's, it's just funny that no one noticed. <laughs> like, I showed up enough to like load on things. But um, uh, yeah, so fortnightly was, I loved that job. I loved, um, I've never, yeah, I've never written journalistically before but I, I did very much appreciate the, the fortnightly role was like low responsibility because you only had to write every other week and you worked um, to kind of get your feet wet that job never really expected you to stick to one uh genre like like as you become a like a more senior editor you're you know assigned to like arts or uh, national news but the fortnightlies are just kind of allowed to do like opinion or you know whatever events they feel like covering um and it really yeah and that would have been under the leadership of uh Kaylin Taylor and Teresa Chen and I that was uh their leadership was actually what inspired um an approach to our leadership night, I think you might remember, with the story meetings, because uh, it was Kaylin and Teresa that would always start the story meetings with the, the issue that had just come out and put it on the floor or give everyone a copy and ask everyone to like criticize it and say, okay, where did we screw up? Like what, like everything from like typos to like an article that could have been written better. Um, I think we also complimented ourselves too. I think it was a balance of all that, but I found it to be a really accessible and inclusive approach to like journalism and also very like non-hierarchical. Like 
you know, to accept your criticism like that. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, like working in hierarchical environments uh, since that time, like there is no space to like criticize or like critique, you know, or edit pretty much anything. Like you'd have to volunteer yourself as someone's like, who says like, Hey, I saw flaws in this. And then that kind of puts you in an awkward position Totally. that could like risk your position in your workplace. Totally. You know, you you might be like disrespected, but like opening it up, being like, we are beginning from a point of transparency and openness as much as, as much as possible when you're dealing with 25 year olds or 20 year olds with big egos, but like (laughs) starting from a point of transparency and then you can like work from there. And I think that's why, I mean, I, I think one of like the, positive things about our years our year together is um that our story meetings were really busy and I yeah think has something to do with that oh great time and it, it, it did change um and I agree with you that that there's a risk in that that criticism and I think that's why it has to be you know uh the leadership that sets that tone right like the biggest risks should be taken by the people with the most power you know in order to create it a sense of safety to be able to be critical, right? Like, because often that's what we see in hierarchical organizations. And I mean, super relevant to what's going on right now in, in the art world with institutions being like called out. Mm-hmm. It's, still ha- it's still happening from the bottom. It's happening from people that already did take a risk and got harmed and got fired, you know? And, and uh, that's what often like really inhibits change is when, yeah, the folks with the most power take the least amount of responsibility uh, for how things are run. Um, and like slowing things, slowing the process down enough to allow that kind of space. And that's what the story meetings felt like. And it was nice to bring that back in our leadership because I agree with you. I think it's, uh, I think that energy became infectious much in the way I think it was with Teresa and Kaylin, right? Like, I think that's why we got these like amazing turnouts at the story meetings was because it was very inclusive. It was very accessible to, to frame things that way as opposed to like, I don't know. There's, yeah. Like to, to lead that way was like, I appreciated that. And also, like, to try to approach editing, co editing, she's like uh, from a place of mentorship and not, I don't know, grand, like that kind of thing. Like, uh, I'm trying to like share that I power. Like assertions of power. Yeah, that's what you just, yeah. Totally. Um, and also, yeah, sometimes it was humiliating. <laughs> not humiliating, oh. but like, uh, really oh, awkward. Yeah. And people came in and they're like, this didn't make any sense. <laughs> this article was like, like gratuitous and self-involved, which we yes. were, you know, or like you, the imagery you chose to go with my article actually kind of ruined it. Like those are really hard. Brett was not happy with that. It was no, me. But I, I mean, uh, that makes, that makes sense. Um, yeah. And I think that no. was like, occasionally we could be a little, like we were so excited about design and like the aesthetics of the paper that I guess yeah. in the moments we weren't like, what does the author think of this? Like that question didn't come up as much. And, as and Yeah. And that was, so that was Brett Troop and, and I appreciated his candor about that because yeah, although my intention was there, I believe that that was my uh, doing. I yeah. chose uh, a piece of uh, stencil art from Daryl Volcat, which was like a pretty prolific uh, gay, uh, not queer as in happy, but gay as in fuck you. 
And and it, it went to a good conversation with Brett, and I think he softened a bit when he understood that it was, yeah, a piece of art. It wasn't an attempt to be, like, you know, punk, but at the same time, right, I definitely empathized with what he said, and it carried forward, right, like, in terms of thinking about our editors as not just, you know, thinking in terms of that year's volume, but they were creating um, portfolios, you know, and yeah. and, and Chris Chang-Yang Phillips going on to work for the CDC, it was definitely the reason I didn't go forward with my the greatest headline of all time. Canada cockblocks climate talks. Canada <laughs> cockblocks climate talks. I repeat yeah. that to myself from time to time. It's just so good. But yeah. we were like, this brilliant mind will probably not appreciate that his piece of like scientific investigative journalism <laughs> was like a joke. Was a joke for us, uh, which <laughs> certainly wasn't. But uh, we sometimes have to resist. Oh, actually, this kind of would fit into one piece of advice. Sometimes you have to resist being clever, like and being so attached to your own cleverness that you actually sabotage your message. And I think a lot of like young writers, especially um, or writers in general, who are very passionate and that's not meant to be condescending like very engaged and passionate but also like cynical and clever and brilliant like sometimes the the brilliance of like your message i mean some people won't agree that canada cockblocks climate talks is like the most brilliant thing ever but like sometimes your you want your your wit is too strong to like avoid and that interferes with the message it's like how in an argument, sometimes you want to say the most like scathing thing because it's really funny or not yeah. funny, but it's like so clever and witty and smart. And then you realize that it'll just take your argument to a totally different, unproductive level. Totally. So basically, that's my advice to a rookie reporter or reporter of any kind. I think my advice would also be a continuation of I didn't realize I got distracted halfway through my bio. Um, <laughs> oh, I think I, I distracted you. I don't think. I think I totally led you off. Oh. It's okay, but I think it works out because um, after the fortnightly year was the year I, uh, for, which is probably going to resonate with a lot of folks, uh, school is rough. I, I had to take a mental health year, but um, my love for, well, I miss Peterborough dearly. I grew up in a small town, but. I mean, it's different now, but uh, at the time I was uh, very isolated, and especially from my queerness. And uh, so I missed Tina Brown deeply. And uh, the one tether I tried to maintain uh, was with Arthur. And I um, <laughs> created an unpaid, unsolicited position for myself at Arthur that year under Ariel and James's stewardship. And I made myself the editorial cartoonist, which no one asked me oh, to do. Yeah. <laughs> and so. And it was, it was exciting. It was, it, my father used to berate me for it. Like, oh, are you getting paid for this? He just didn't understand why I was so committed to this thing. But um, basically, Ariel and James, it would be Sunday and somewhere around midday to probably as late as 8 o'clock at night, they would finally come up with their editorial topic. And so I would have from that point until press to like, come up with an idea, draw it out, scan it, and send it to them, which was, I mean... That's an intense amount of work, but also it was all I had. It was the only lifeline I had to connect me back to Trent and also like Arthur, which, you know, I, I my, yeah, my love for Arthur just had totally grown over my first year. Um, 
yeah, no, it was it was really fun to do those editorial cartoons and to still feel like I was there without being there, which sort of feels familiar to the, the struggle right now with uh, the pandemic and COVID and finding ways to still feel connected to community when you can't be with community. Um, and I guess that might be my advice would be like, I don't know, like, I don't think, yeah, it's like that, that passion I, I feel is, you know, connected to journalism and that like for young writers, it's like, there's such a joy in like cultivating your voice and, you know, don't let the fact that it's maybe just an editorial cartoon and it feels insignificant, you know, uh, dissuade you from like contributing. It doesn't have to look like, you know, writing on the front page or whatever to be, to be a significant part of the whole, you know, and like, um, it was thrilling to get to respond to the editors that way. Like I felt this developed intimacy, even though I was rarely physically there of like creating a piece of art out of, out of what they were intellectually contemplating. Um, yeah. Anyway, I feel like I did a drawing of it. Some, some sort of game reference to James and the Giant Peach. I don't know. I think Ariel was writing about one of the bills at the time. Anyways, um, but yeah, no, after I came back to Trent uh, to finish up school, I studied English literature, which no one seemed to remember ever. Everyone thought it. Everyone would be like, women studies? No. Political studies? No. Like, no one, I, it's just sort of that funny, like, even as an artist, people would be like, what are you doing? <laughs> um... But yeah, and then I think that that time away might actually have been the beginning of what inspired me to want to run with you, like, and like taking it, like, like what I like what you said about being one of the few people that maybe cross led, you know, the TCSA, like student governance and and journalistic approach. Like, I feel like we're made to think that these things shouldn't have overlap or that they're like a sacrifice sort of like pursuit. Uh, I think I, I really like grew to love that about you that you were informed by a lot of different things and, and similarly myself like I you know had a love for literature and a love for being critical but it was always a bit of a blend of like of art and of, of politics um uh which was why I was grateful to be hired that year as arts editor they really wanted me to do national news I don't think I told you that <laughs> but I, I kind of I pled uh with James and Palace about that I was like no but I I just really want to do arts, please. <laughs> and because uh, I liked um, the idea of, I guess, coming off of a year in isolation in Uxbridge, Ontario, I liked the idea of making, you know, the the art world, which is notoriously elitist and uh, esoteric, uh, more accessible to just anyone in the town because of, just because of that desperation and, and loneliness that a lot of people contend with and how art can be a welcoming place if we make it, you know, and that's something that's being debated right now, institutionally, uh, especially in Toronto. Um, yeah, I guess that's a, a good kind of combination of advice and also um, what I studied and what I'm up to now, practicing artist and sculptor, etc. So, yeah, and um, also how you and I got connected with the... Yeah, actually, I was going to bring up, I mean, I realized I forgot to say my major, which was cultural studies, with an mm -hmm. emphasis in writing and narrative. And uh, and you were English lit, and so we actually, like, our connection was, it was political and that we, like, ran for the TCSA together, candidates mm -hmm. for a democratic university. <laughs> uh, that's <laughs> Anyway, and then we knew each other from like poetry slams and stuff too. So I was so happy when you 
asked me to co-edit with you and I think that makes or to run for co-editor with you because I think that says something to your approach that you're like you know I haven't had the standard like four years at Arthur but I have other experience and also that we were both like poetry nerds and you knew, you knew I could write and then you also yeah so that that was such a I guess that's another piece of advice to like not rule out like untraditional approaches to writing and to journalism well would you say that 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 school I know you we've talked about this a few times and uh it was hard I think maybe it was hard in the years immediately after Arthur to feel quite as uh um like good about what we achieved together because it, it was a tough time for us uh you know anyone being young and and taking on that kind of leadership but um in the years since, like, I feel really proud of some of the things we accomplished because even in approaching you to run with me, it didn't follow some of the, like, it didn't, yeah, it didn't follow some of the trends that have been common in Arthur up until that point, but, like, like the qualities that both you and I brought together, I would say, our house in the decades since been called into attention within leadership, within institutions, like, what is valued? Like, you and I both deeply cared about mentorship, perhaps more than we did about performing a politic. Um, and so mentorship ended up being, a, a, I, I believe, a big part of our year, you know, and like, uh, what else? We really cared about, yeah, beautiful things and like poetry and, and making that paper beautiful, like deciding to scrap the whole design and approach uh, Jeff Macklin and, and, you know, make that a fun part of like, you know, our yeah, like the, the new masthead. Yeah. yeah, and going on a little field trip to an old printing press kind yeah, of Yeah, that was studio. a fun thing, because we basically invited, like, the first week, before, I don't know, but very early on, uh, we invited a bunch of writers to Jeff Macklin's studio, and then he, we talked about what we wanted, and then he worked on the, the design for the wood, wood press, what is it called? Yeah. Yeah, and so that was a really exciting collaborative thing, like, it wasn't just a design thing, whim, that Jess and I yeah. had. Um, yeah, but I mean, one of the things about like our untraditional paths and like our time since is that um, we weren't that invested in the idea of a journalism career, which I think, no. <laughs> I mean, we literally weren't at all. Um, so I think that that had some amazing positives and that we were able to be ridiculous and take risks. And then the negatives, of course, is that we weren't... Um, we weren't like obsessed with building our portfolio or anything, which means we did make some mistakes or, you know, we rambled when we, it wasn't like a cohesive <laughs> article. And I think we like, we're good writers, but I think we weren't like uh, local, you know, like national news writers or anything. Um, so, so I, yeah. Uh, I the, mean, the I positive, another the piece positive of advice. And the negatives is there. What? The positive, I was just thinking the positives and the negatives of not taking yourself seriously. <laughs> but also we did take ourselves seriously. So like uh, in other ways. Uh, so I think my general advice is to be ridiculous and accept that and take risks, but don't get totally obsessed with yourself in your own um, world. Uh, and to get some sleep. I just don't think oh God. I, like this is the main thing, actually. I think there's a lot of beautiful tidbits in what we're saying that it may be more applicable for Arthur editors than writers, but, um, or like rookie writers, 
but like get some sleep. Like you're not so important that you can't get like seven to eight hours sleep or something. Uh, like I know it's really, really hard. Just like eat some meals. Like you just it, don't like drink until 6 a.m. Drink until yeah. like 2 a.m. You know, like still have those late night conversations that are actually uh, drinking or not drinking, very important to learning about Trent and Trent history and Peterborough history. Yeah, so absolutely of yourself. Like, try to learn that early on, like, uh, or don't, and then take the majority of your twenties trying to learn it. But I think you probably, I don't know if I'd recommend that approach that I took. Well, I mean, those conversations are coming to the fore now, and I'm grateful for that. Like, like uh, talking about care, you know, and and not making it the either or. Like, even in the arts, it, it's uh, yeah, like, and, and I, and, you know, I can see the ways that's also tethered to marginalized bodies being expected to be exceptional, you know, and, and I think yeah. we did have a bit of pressure on us because in some ways I think we weren't always taken seriously because of gender. Um, and, yeah, to, to be both, like, you know, I'm not, yeah, to be, like, I don't know, queer and femme and not like Marty's like not cis and, and to also be silly like at the time there yeah. was a, there was a palpable risk you know maybe we didn't always care but there was a risk to to doing all those things together you know and uh, because you know like some people are afforded the ability to be like waxer you know Dylan Thomas's and, and drinking and, and, and be seen as a serious artist or a serious writer. And some people are not afforded that. Like they're seen as messes, they're seen as sluts, they're seen as, you know. And so I can still, yeah, in, in that leadership, like because we were elected, there was nothing anyone could do about that, right? It's, it's different than being in a, a different workplace setting. Like as long as we're doing the work, the job is ours and, and the platform is ours, right? But like at the same time, they're, yeah, there were moments where I could feel that particular, I don't know, I don't know about you, but like that particular seething misogyny and a host of phobias and uh, all that kind of stuff. And like just for daring to be confident and silly at the same time, you know. And I, I think that, I don't know how much that has fully changed, you know, in the, in the, in the arts, in a workforce, like, I don't know. Sorry, I mean, I got, this got real serious. <laughs> but it's like, I, yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I think like, also, I mean, we weren't, oh, we weren't like exactly like celebrated, right? Like we won. No. By, I mean, we were elected by one vote, I think it was. Something like that, yeah. And uh, people were kind of pissed. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. Because we Someone... weren't like the traditional yeah. kind of journalist types, which I think men are, often white men like are often just easily seen as that like if they decide that they're serious people then other people decide that they're serious yeah people. i and, remember uh, we were taken i remember yeah i remember hearing someone complain that we were going to turn the newspaper into a zine okay what does what does that mean the hell yeah like <laughs> what does that even mean <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I did feel like we, it took a lot to prove ourselves. And because also another thing is that we weren't in as like intensely political a year as yes. the year before that, which 
I mean, yes. I feel like I caused a lot of those intense politics <laughs> in 2008 and we're like, I was being reported on rather than doing mm -hmm. the reporting. But I mean, really a lot of that had calmed down and we were able to focus on other things. And then we weren't, because of that, we weren't seen as like traditionally Arthur, which is ridiculous because we both have like intense experiences as student activists. Totally. Um, and like, lo you know, loved Trent a lot, like almost a ridiculous amount and like had loved the mythology around Trent so much and like around Trail and Sadler House and the occupation and privatization and all that stuff. Uh, we just wasn't, it didn't have to be our focal point, even though we did address those issues. So I think that totally. was that too, because we were just, we were seen as like less serious. Although who knows? I mean, this is our like analysis, maybe people out there listening if you thought we were serious and cool <laughs> no but um and i know we got really good feedback from people it just wasn't uh it was just it was just different and we were able to talk about like national issues but especially international mm -hmm. ones that weren't raised before as much yeah and the reason we did that wasn't because we were like trying to be serious journalists who write about like the arab spring we were trying to be like what is the student like what is the 18 year old on the Trend Express going like, what news is that guy getting, right? Like he's not yeah. all night. He's like picking up a student, like the student newspaper that he probably kind of thinks is trash because he's bored on the bus. And so if he can read, or she, but I'm picturing a dude right now. <laughs> like, <laughs> if he can read, uh, you know, a 250 page, page word article about like what's going on in Egypt like that's great and that's I think what we were writing for often like not our allies but people who didn't really care about us who just picked us up because they it was around and that's what's totally. beautiful about print totally um it makes me want to ask you I'll, I'll go first but it makes me want to ask you uh, uh what your favorite piece of feedback was and from who, whoever regardless because I think my favorite piece of feedback that might have actually been in the year prior, but definitely influenced me to try to keep going with uh So the year prior, I was, yeah, art editor, and I think that that was the year I maybe really sculpted my voice that I then brought into, like, co-editing. But, um, oh, I think her name was Maggie, and she used to work at Black Honey, as a million people did. Um, but she said to me one day that, like, uh, she, looks forward, yeah, she looks forward to my articles every week because... Like in this way, that was like I appreciate. You know, it's nice to get compliments on your writing, but it was about what she gestured at that really inspired me to kind of keep going with that energy. And what she was essentially saying, it was, it was really beautiful. Like, uh, like yeah, the, the the way I was writing and the approach I was taking to the art, you know, um, inspired her to not only like be reading the paper, but like to be want to be involved. And I was like, yes, okay, like this idea that that journalism has to, because like Arthur, you know, they train you every year. And I remember, you know, maybe we on the surface at the time didn't have a politically charged year, as you mentioned, but we ended up in hindsight having a really pivotal year to the editors because that was the year that media changed forever. And the way I was trained uh, from fortnightly onward uh, was that uh, to write from a place of non-bias. And I remember like, feeling a little dumb or naive at the time when like when James Burroughs was trying to explain this to me. I was like, okay, but like, what does that even mean? Like, like I get what you're saying, right as third person. I don't want to, but um, <laughs> but the idea that one could possibly <laughs> I don't think I ever did. 
I almost think I did that because I was told I couldn't. I think you were allergic to writing in third person. <laughs> I know. Oh, God, I'll never forget the day Burroughs said, you're three paragraphs in and I still don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> that was quite I feel writing. like that's our, uh, our, our radio show. You know, it's like, you're 37 minutes in. And we still don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, I, I used to write these excessive anecdotes to get myself writing. I don't know. Anyway, they could have easily been shortened. Um, but yeah, I think I cultivated this desire to kind of prove that, uh, like to prove the fallacy of the idea of non-bias, which at the time, like if folks can remember what even the, the landscape of the internet looks like in 2010, it was like, this was way before like people took independent writers and journalists and like uh, bloggers, uh, and those kind of branded voices seriously as media sources. We were still very invested as somehow, you know, the, the press, yeah, some sort of objective truth. Um, and, and, and that, you know, you know, white man telling the news is, is not informed by, a, a, you know, a subjective white male experience. We were like, no, 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 this is like how it's done kind of thing. And I think in our year, we saw a lot of that erode itself with like, this like crashing intersection with like, you know, uh, political and social movements and the internet and, and what have you. I don't want to get too far into that because it's that's a whole conversation I think we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna get to, but you know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. My favorite compliment came from Maggie because of oh, like sorry. Yeah, I know. That's where we were at. Okay. My favorite compliment came from Maggie because I think that's what I cared about. The idea that, you know you can write well, you can write critically and still be accessible and not be a dick and include everyone. Like, why can't everyone be included kind of thing? Like the idea that I was, in order to write good critical arts writing, I, I'm now actually on um, uh, the editorial advisory committee of Scene Magazine, which is a Toronto-based arts journal. Uh, and when I got invited to be on the, the advisory, I was like, oh my God, Meg, like it was like <laughs> the rush of Arthur editing came back to me. I was so excited. I was probably so irritated in those first couple story meetings because I was so <laughs> excited and earnest and I just had all these ideas. <laughs> I used to be a journalist. Oh my goodness. Must have been sufferable. But anyway, um, I think, yeah, critical arts writing is, is, is slowly changing in that way too, to acknowledge that, yeah, like, why can't you be earnest and also critically sound? Like, why does it have to look like alienated you know, references and things like that. Like, anyway, what is yeah. your favorite compliment? That was a long ass answer. Yeah, that was a long ass answer. I've been trying to think of it while you were talking. I went to a different place. No, I'm kidding. I was listening. Um, I don't like, I know they exist. Like, there's no way I went through that whole experience without getting any validation at all. But I just like, um, well, you, I, you, I, I, I remember. I feel like you got a lot of great feedback about uh, the interview you pulled off, which we called Mr. Collegiality. Another epic headline. <laughs> we love headlines so much. God, Mr. Collegiality. It's so, it's golden. It's so it's basically cool. the president of Trent at the time was obsessed with the word collegiality, which is where this is coming from. He constantly, and I did an interview with him with two other people, and it was like, which was a big deal because he, remember who, but, he, um, he, he accepted your, your interview. Like that was, that was a big, I remember that being a big deal was that he agreed to it. 
uh, I just remember him talking about collegiality and me being like, where is the story here? <laughs> and then having, to, having to pull it together. But, um, Mr. oh yeah, and then Jess later on, the next time we did an article about him, what was his name? God, where did the worst? Stephen Franklin. Oh, Stephen Franklin. Because I did an editorial cartoon with him as Franklin the Turtle. Oh, God, we're such serious journalists. Um, oh, God. Yeah, anyway, so then Jess did the headline, Mr. Uh, Mr. Collegiality 2, great movie. And, and then our, our good bud was like, this is not your best work. <laughs> Thank you, Jim Smith. Excellent feedback. Um, Jim Smith, who now works for the NDB. BC, yeah, he's a pretty, pretty high up dude. Love that guy. Uh, yeah, also another thing, this is like, I won't go into this too much because it's really obnoxious, but all of my best friends are from like 2007 to 2010, like still. Um, like oh. you mentioned, so like not that I'm necessarily in contact with people all the time, although I actually mostly am. Like that's such a formative time. So don't burn too many bridges is my other piece of it. <laughs> Unless they're shitty bridges and they need to come down. But um, also the funny thing is that uh, if you could give one piece of advice is the question, but Jess and I do not believe in oneness. <laughs> and... <laughs> We are multitudes, okay? We're multitudes. <laughs> I'm a bipolar, bisexual Gemini. Like, I can't answer one piece of advice. Are you kidding? Um, and I go by day then, so. Precisely. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Jess. Oh, no, I didn't. I don't know. what. I think the most validation I got was when people were said things like, oh, I'm at the story meeting because I had a conversation with you two years ago about this uh, or something like that like that I found really helpful especially because a lot of my role in the TCSA was like kind of obnoxious I mean that's a whole other interview but it's it was such a divisive and painful time and basically we learned about the rise of populism through like a incredibly narcissistic person um who used to poster around school how hard he worked like that he worked 60 hours a week and and that's why, honestly, after that, like da Rob Ford, Doug Ford, Trump, none of those people were surprising to me when they won because I was like, nope. it works. Um, anyway, I won't go into that too much. Uh, what was I saying? <laughs> I was so whiny. <laughs> Shit, I'm sorry. Uh, okay. um, I'm not apologizing to you. <laughs> okay, I'll just go. <laughs> Anyway, maybe I'll come back around to that. But my I, I might I might say like I, I sorry, I forgot that there's actual questions. Um, yeah, I was just did, gonna did, I was just gonna switch to that. I was gonna say the one about the career because it feels connected to what we're both saying right now. Because we're talking about friends of ours, like who we're still connected to and, and there is a common tether that it isn't just friendship, but it's like the idea that you can be friends and in the struggle together and in various kinds of jobs, you know, like TCSA was never really my thing. Like I, I don't mind dabbling in a lot of things, but ultimately I think I, I'm not a fit for electoral politics and it's not from a place of self-righteousness. It's just like knowing your strengths kind of thing. And I'm, I'm just better as like a, like a, like a rogue, you know, like we need, we need, all sorts of roles in order to be critical. We need people working internally and we need people 
you know, operating from the outside because those are both realities. You know, there are people that just don't fit into institutions and, and that's by design, you know. And I think that that's influenced uh, pursuing an artistic practice because, yeah, like, I liked what you said about how neither of us, I mean, I did give it a thought about pursuing journalism after that year, but then I gave up pretty quickly because I realized there were, at the time anyway, I think I applied for a job at either Now Magazine or Extra because I moved to Toronto that fall, but like, I think I gave up pretty quickly after not hearing back because I realized that journalism just didn't reflect at the time the freedom that we gave ourselves with Arthur and that a voice like mine, like in order to get hired uh, in media, at, again, at the time, I would have to conform a lot more than maybe I wanted to in order just to get in the door. And it just didn't feel desirable or play into my strengths to do that at the time. And I think that's why art became appealing because it seemed to be the greatest amount of voice and freedom, uh, the soonest, you know, without having to spend so many years paying institutional dues without even the guarantee that at the end of that, you won't be a changed person. You know, we see yeah. that, we see, we see a lot of that, right? And so I think, you know, art was hard at first because Toronto's expensive and, uh, um, you know, a lot of systemic oppression meant that, you know, certain artists just, you know, aren't taken seriously, even if their contributions are, are voluminous and, and over great amounts of time. Uh, and uh, that's connected to a lot of the overhaul that's being called out right now in uh, my workforce, I guess, uh, with the arts. But um, yeah, I'd say Arthur absolutely influenced my career in the sense that it made me value protecting one's voice, you know, and, and feeling even in a context economically where you're made to feel like you don't have any choices, you know, like you're just yeah. taking dogs for money and maybe you are just taking dogs for money, but you don't, you can make the choice even in small ways to never, you know, sacrifice your voice, you know, and like, it's hard to feel that way. Like, when, you know, you and I were in Toronto in those like early years, like it was so hard, like we were so broke and like it, that's and I would have like twelve dollars between us. Like, oh my gosh! Like, who's gonna like? Can one of us afford a popsicle? Like, <laughs> yes. I mean, and one of the really like, I've definitely struggled in terms of a career um, after Arthur. Like, I actually thought that you know, being like vice president of student issues and co-editor of the student newspaper and all, like a series of, of other like elected or key responsibilities would help mm -hmm. me in my career after more, much, much more than it did. But I yeah. think that's because like, and that's not so much to do with, with me, although there's elements that uh, contribute like mental illness, but there's also like, there's no real traditional, like, okay, all I have to do is get into the school and then I can be a, or do this thing and then be a journalist or a teacher yeah. or a lawyer like even these actually really standard jobs like teaching and becoming a lawyer are incredibly difficult to get yeah. headway in and another yeah. thing is like honestly after Arthur like once you are in a position where like you have like independence and creativity and like interaction with people it's really hard to go out into the workforce and that's the workforce yeah. but that's not about like that's not about like oh I'm so coddled in university it's like you had this outlet to yeah. be yourself and like to explore ridiculousness and intelligence and in a way that it doesn't isn't necessarily specific to being an undergrad it's specific to like 
being an Arthur or assumed her. Yeah. Uh, so that ended, and I haven't had a lot of independence after. I've been in like positions where I have to correct the spelling errors of the men above me who like literally can't write at all. Um, yeah. Like, you know, rewrite instead of like ever being able to draft. And that's why I quit my job basically of like five years that I won't <laughs> name them or anything, but it's like a political entity, a political communications kind of place. And I was so excited to get in because I felt like, oh, this is what I was aiming for. Like I'd done a contract with like the NDP and I was like, oh, I don't know, I was so excited. And then it's just not like, it's so hard. It's not, it's not the same. Like you don't have much of a, of a role. Jess, are you still there? Oh yeah, you are. I am. Sorry. My mother's trying to call me right now. Oh, <laughs> you know what? I'm proud of her. She's getting better at the internet. <laughs> Great. <laughs> anyway, yeah. so yeah, Arthur did impact my career though in that like, I think I'm smarter for it in that like, I'm more myself. I know myself much better, which because there's no c traditional careers anyway, you might as well spend time like actually developing a real authentic relationship with yourself. Um, totally. And hopefully I, it, that'll benefit you eventually. Like, I feel like it's finally benefiting me in the, the last the last few years. It makes me think about, I mean, something we can, we've kind of touched on with that we can like more transparently share that uh, we had a unique Arthur relationship given that in, you know, we were friends before being co-editors, but then also uh, we had a connection after Arthur that involved seeing each other during those stretch of years post Arthur and in the times that you're talking about and uh, accidentally entering the same apartment ad in Toronto in 2012. Uh, yeah. And then we asked if we knew each other, which is funny because the only reason we both knew about that apartment was uh, uh, Peterborough connections, right? I don't even think they had made, that they had made a housing ad. It was just some sort of Facebook status about share between folks. I think it was Robin Watson. I don't even know. But uh, yeah, it's, uh, I remember like, you know, intimately your struggles with the workforce in part because in sharing a living space, you know, it, like much like sharing the Arthur office, except a little different. Like I can see- Basically the same. <laughs> well, the same and different, like, I guess where I was gonna go with that, just cause I think it's really tender, but also connected is that like, you know, yeah, watching your struggle, you know, as your friend and roommate, and then trying to, like, out of care, wanting to help compensate for that stress and that existential stress of, of what you're, you know, generously sharing about what it means to, like, yeah, like, get hired at a, a Kong's firm with these, like, dreams of, 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 you know, being taken seriously and freedom and, and rising up in your position and, and just not being, not finding that inspiration because of how the world works and how institutions have carried on with that kind of dismissive, you know, isms and all that stuff. And, and just like getting up early just to make you a smoothie so that you'd be yeah. a little less depressed, you know, like, because, because like, I think it beca we, I became acute, we became both acutely aware of each other's struggles in the workforce and, and what does it mean to identify as a creative but feel so suppressed by the opportunities or lack thereof or yeah, to, I'm to like, really yeah. have a voice, you know? I'm basically just learning how to like finish poems and not just like scribble in notebooks for 10 years. 
and actually one of the last times I had a really strong like poetic kind of presence was in was in Peterborough and it was so based around like stories and totally. storytelling and stuff like that I'm also like my life's been pretty good in Toronto too I'm not like nothing else. oh no 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 I guess um no but I think what you're what you're saying makes lots of sense and one another piece of advice I'll say <laughs> if you have impeccable smell spelling and uh, passable grammar, what I would suggest is to never show anyone because you will be like copy editing dudes <laughs> work forever. <laughs> um, oh my gosh. I, I was like, if I had, and all of them are really bad spelling and grammar. And so I'm like, if I had impeccable, I mean, sorry, if I had really bad spelling and grammar, I could be at like the top of this place. But I think that that's not how gender works. But uh, nope. anyway, I'm, uh oh so my question to you was what is your favorite Trent slash Peterborough myth slash legend okay I I think I figured what mine is because it's connected to the editorial of mine that I ended up choosing that I'm gonna read because this it's a it's a person (laughs) and and they come up in the article and so I was like you know what if I was being honest about myself like about Jess's you know, Trent Pedro myth legends, it would be this question and you're going to laugh and you probably already know who it is. No, I think I know. Uh, Stephen Brown. No, no, no. Honestly, my, my experience with Trent, you know, it's, it's, I, I was actually just talking to Sarah, Sarah Ledeen the other day, your, your weekly finance, um, uh, about, you know, we were just having this like gratitude moment about Trent and about how, specifically the time that the three of us were there you know it was a little bit after you know the French age and all that kind of political nostalgia but it was before things really changed in that huge way you know to what universities are kind of like now where you know students are customers and all that kind of stuff uh I, I basic think, what was it called ba- like in- income units or something like that there was stuff like yeah it was like used our era encompassed the rise of NAMPs, you know, which I feel very grateful to have a, to have had a thorough understanding, a participatory understanding of what that even is. Non-academic uh, misconduct policy. Yeah, and, and how that is a tether to the police, you know, police, policing of private institutions. Anyway, that's a whole thing. Um, but also, you know, like, yeah, I feel like I got such a civic education at the same time. But uh, one thing that I, I definitely got from Trent that uh, I think my heart has like yearned for in the time since. And I, I think, you know, I, I feel grateful that I've found it again now, but it's mentorship. So I personally enjoyed being a mentor when we were both co-editors, but I also had the extreme, you know, benefits and uh, blessing of, of being mentored and, and in, in very non-hierarchical ways. And Stephen Brown was one of my mentors. And uh, honestly, my grades and my English lit degree were pretty mediocre until you know, my final two years uh, where I connected with, yeah, teachers, but specifically this teacher that really, much in a very trite way, inspired me to find my voice and to resist status quo, even as it conferred, uh, you know, instructional frameworks. I, I still remember, he, he loves our, our three year, by the way. And uh, I, stumbled, I stumbled into his class because uh, a friend told me about it, his fourth year class, I think I was like a week or two late, and uh, 
but uh, after hearing her talk about it, I was like, what is this class? And he called it, it's a fourth year reading class, American Lit, he called it the natural history of love. And I was like, what? And like, he was like, the syllabus was everything from like, autumn to like the movie lost in translation to like blues lyrics to like uh anyway i still remember the first essay i had to turn into him and him being like just i don't want you to write me an essay i think he even said this to me at nada's cafe just <laughs> just i don't want you to write me an essay i want you to write me something weird <laughs> i was like okay <laughs> but it was because he was following our 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 articles every, our, our editorials every week, and uh, and he knew you were capable of weird. <laughs> oh, exactly. I think he even embarrassingly started one of our seminars by wanting to talk about what I had written that week, and I think everyone in the class fucking hated me <laughs> for that. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, uh, he. I don't know that experience and the and that mentorship meant a lot to me, and it it felt. I don't know. Like and now that I'm thinking about it, it kind of felt like friendship which isn't really all that common, like, like in terms of, like, what we're made to believe university is about. Like, he, he felt like my friend. Like, he felt like, you know, he just, like, wanted to bring out the best in my voice, and it wasn't about meritocracy, you know? Yeah. It was, I, you know? Yeah. I was always a little envious of that professorial relationship, actually. Um, I, I don't blame you. I, I yeah. wished, I honestly wished it upon everyone. I was like, like, it, it changed how I felt about my entire time at Trent, and it doesn't matter that I didn't graduate because I oh, yeah. like, had like three credits shy or some shit. Like, oh, it broke my mother's heart. I think she's gotten over it now, but she was like, I guess why is it hard with a blow? I'm like, I don't care. That's one um, of the issues, though, about um, like not, universities not offering tenure anymore or like yeah. being a professor being so, so hard on people is that totally. it's harder to develop relationships with professors. Like I, for my trans feminism class in fourth year, I had this amazing professor and she wanted to like actually try to get me published. And I'd never had that before, like in an yeah. academic journal. And, uh, and then, but she taught at three different universities, like York, Trent, and University of Ottawa within the span of a week that she had to go to all those places. So like, there's no way. I actually was like really worried I wouldn't be able to find two references for my graduate school application. Yeah, I did. And when I was Molly Blythe, who I knew would, would do that, and she was probably my only real like relationship um, that I have maintained. Uh, yeah. But yeah, that is, that's tough. And that's also something that's like worth fighting for. And some of these like trans oh, yeah. issues, sometimes like it, on, in retrospect seem kind of silly, not silly, but you're like, oh, did it really matter? There was a student, a private student res residence, like, I mean, probably yes, but like that type of thing. But then it's like, mm -hmm. no, we have to bring this up because like the institution of the university is actually very important and Absolutely. it's threatened in massive ways all the time. And now it's like people at like the TCSA, well, some of them and Arthur were always concerned with like the neoliberalization of the university and what that will mean for humanities and essentially what that means for like critical thinking. Um, what's that? Oh, the humanities. This might be yeah. a good. Uh, that is a good segue. I actually. <laughs> I, I have to go to the. You have to go to the bathroom. Is that what you said? Yeah. Saying? So I. Um, can, I kind of want to make more coffee. Do you want to like pause or just like leave it dead air? We'll just leave it on. Leave it. I'm just gonna pause the record, the phone recording, and then leave this dead the air. on. Okay. Okay. Cool. If you want to run and make coffee, that's fine. Perfect. Okay. I'm gonna do that.
Okay, that's fine. I can just start a new one. It saved, okay, the, okay. It saved the other one. It just didn't okay, okay. stop pausing. Cool. Very cool. Okay. Oh, and I only read the first little bit of this enough to know what I said to you. So oh, amazing. So if there's so something I have, I haven't read it. left. I have the memory of writing this, but uh, I don't remember what it says, so. <laughs> oh, okay, you go. <laughs> Is it on? Oh, yeah. That's too hot to step. I don't know why I'm doing that. Okay. So, wait, what am I supposed to say? Oh, yeah, my favorite piece of writing that I did. I guess that's how I'm introducing it. So, yeah, this would have been the editorial from... February 8th and 20, 2011 uh, and much in the much in the in the same vein as uh, our welfare headlines I called it oh the humanities um, nice nice uh -huh. okay in quotes uh I missed talking to you there have been a few years. <laughs> I was like, what? oh, me too, but it's been like a day. Wow, oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. sorry. You I thought that was about you? Yeah, I did. <laughs> you like the doing funniest, a wistful sigh. Anyway. The funniest part is that I didn't know who I was quoting because I don't say until a couple paragraphs in. <laughs> I was like, who do I miss talking to or misses talking to me? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Ah, I miss talking to you. There have been a few evenings where I've almost gone to the only in hopes of running into you. <laughs> End quote. <laughs> this past week, I've been thinking a lot about intimacy. I mean, it's February after all. The snow has already begun its fickle contemplation of leaving or staying, while the dreaded V-Day looms just six days from this issue's publication. Don't fear. Trent and Peterborough have always been grand at providing alternatives to the forthcoming heteronormative, lovey-dovey, hyper-commercial nausea that many associate with Valentine's, especially veteran members of the Bitter Hearts Club like me, <laughs> from the Trent Queer Collective's annual self-love week to the Cannery Art Center's unplugged, anti-love, open mic listings found on page two, or even the punked-out crafty wares for sale at Romantic, page 11. But you should know, my own cardiac permafrost aside, that the tenderly divulged nostalgic quote above is not from any lover turned ex of mine, rather a tenure track professor turned mentor and friend. Oh, I guess I did think it was friendship back then. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, sitting down at a table at, the, at that cafe together, a glass of bourbon individually kept by each of us is not new. In fact, it had been a weekly ritual called Shakespeare a fourth-year-level English literature course at Trent University last spring that my excited professor let me co-design. Yes, it was entirely as you are imagining it. True to the dated romantic chart folklore, we'd course through play after play in the monstrous anthologies our dear prof lent us, picking apart sonnets and talking about gender and queer theory until the boisterous bar hours like every tacky dead poet society fantasy of university life I clung to in my awkward early teens. But over this past weekend, it hasn't been Shakespeare's anthology I've been poring over. Instead, though nearly as coded and pedantic, I've been reading passages 
and the 26-page document circulated last December entitled, quote, Toward a Sustainable Future, the First Integrated Plan for Trent University, 2010-2014. And I haven't been the only one uh, doing my close reading. On the cover, continued on page nine, a trifecta of Arthur writers this week have outlined several aspects of this document as they, uh, as they affect the privatization of Trent's campus, the structure of courses, and the eliminating of programs. As co-editor-in-chief of Trent's newspaper, of Trent student newspaper, and as on-again, off-again Trent student, I've received email forwards around from students and alumni expressing dissatisfaction with this draft, calling for mobilization. My inbox also holds a circulated email penned by concerned faculty in the Canadian Studies Department uh, with an attached letter delivered to presidents slash vice chancellor Stephen Franklin and vice president academic provost Gary Four. In a thorough nine pages, Brian Palmer et al. have extensively probed the proposed integrated plan, pleading for support in fear of the not so insistent, uh, in uh, sorry, in fear of the not so insistent future of their program. Quote, no doubt there is much of value in the draft integrated plan, but our concern, and we cannot state this too empathetically, is that this draft is not an integrated plan at all. It is a business plan. Quote. They go on to remind Franklin and Gore, the first two names you will see on the front page of the draft circulated that, quote, the university is not a business, and it must be led, first and foremost, by an intellectual slash academic vision, quote. Vision. I share this team of engaged faculty's frustration regarding department evaluation based on business models. Are we to understand that it is the disciplines generating the most uh, that it is the disciplines generating the most revenue, thus proving themselves economically, that will be supported? Quote, only when faculty are of the view that their input can actually matter will they engage themselves fully in the university. This engagement needs to be encouraged, not truncated. Quote, swap faculty for students, and I, I could be quoting any number of issues of Arthur. Many students harbor ongoing anger and disappointment with these uh, undemocratic pseudo-consultations that Franklin has asserted in Arthur stand, stand, nearly, as a, uh, stand nearly as consent to decision-making to occur. This more than breathes a departure from the mantra woven into Canada's great small university, but enters the territory of entire antithesis. As an English literature major, I've heard, and seen ripples to, tales of this erosion. This weekend, an anonymous source tipped this wannabe sleuth with information that I will lose sleep over. Zaleb Pollock has proposed a world literature program under a School of Language banner. English literature would continue as a degree, but much of the structure would be radically different. According to my source, Opposition is rampant, but has thus far been silent, with whispers of bribery finding way to those in favor of Pollock, or sorry, finding way to those in favor. Pollock also happens to be chairing the university committee that is, quote, looking into the restructuring with absolutely no student input. He has also not told his committee that there is major opposition in the English department, 
quote. Worse still, this worried source caught wind of, quote, an email from college in which he gloated about dismantling the English department, quote. But don't take my oh. cyber water cooler banter too seriously. This can't be true, right? Arthur has spent a lot of energy discussing this change over the last decade, and my anonymous tip is right to caution me that these changes to departments like Canadian studies and English literature stand to irreparably change the education received here at Trent, even more than the threat of the private residences to the college system. Quote, Hugh Elton, Associate Dean of the Humanities, wants first-year English to be taught as much as possible by MA candidates. Quote, in the early years of Trent University, 80% of students were guaranteed to be taught by tenure-track faculty in their first year. Now, my source speculates that figure to be barely 20%. Dealing with deficit by allowing the university to be run like a business, explains setting sights on growth reaching 20,000 students, both here and in Oshawa, and following Elton's push to remove tenure uh, faculty from the first two years of undergraduate teaching, just like at Queen's and in the United States. My source tells me, quote, a university of that nature is a university that will never have that intimacy. Sorry, there's a typo. <laughs> <laughs> there, okay. They talked to you for 20 minutes about your Arthur submission last week over a cut. Oh, okay, okay. So this person, the source, uh, they talked to you for 25, for 20 minutes about your other submission last week over a card before tendering your take home exam that somehow morphed from a two page essay into a 16, into a 16 page cyber meta narrative play that kept you excitedly scribing until four in the morning. Ah, uh, yes, that intimacy. You know what? I believe it. And so do the mobilizing faculty in the Canadian studies department. Quote, small programs are known national and, and, interna and internationally. Small programs teach many students. Small programs sustain rich scholarship. Small programs are integrated into the larger functioning of interdisciplinary undertakings. Programs large, large and small that are not easily fitted into cost accountancies and fiscal regeneration, nonetheless, have a necessary role to play in a university such as Trent and in the understanding of higher education that has sustained Trent since its inception, quote. Such, such thoughtfulness is what I would hope to see from a quote-unquote integrated plan. Such thoughtfulness would seduce me to enroll in another class at Trent University such thoughtfulness from poetry course descriptions now deceased from our handbooks, an interdisciplinary caliber no longer dripping with the same charged critical theory libido once inspired me to make my education like hot, hot sex and write for fantastic smut about it. But hey, happy Valentine's Day. <laughs> wow. Oh, wow, that was long. Lord. That was <laughs> long. I'm sorry, wow. Also, <laughs> I just realized that I was like, oh, and then... My favorite legend is Stephen Brown, and he's in this article. Uh, yeah, I didn't name him. <laughs> <laughs> At least it's a decade later. <laughs> also, I love the, like, in not being clear who you're talking to, and, uh, like, it's just so, the editorial, I'll read, it just starts with, somebody wants, like, somebody <laughs> said that this, it just says, somebody said that Arthur, whatever, and I'm like, who the fuck was somebody? Like, what, <laughs> what kind of a journalist, like, just quote people? 
Anyway, editorials just, are amazing because you have freedom. So much. I'm excited to get into yours. I just, I guess. Oh, we're talking about yours first, for sure. I hadn't read that in, well, probably since I wrote it, but like, man, yeah. Like, even, I remember like coming under fire for writing that, but like the way that like we weren't encouraged to like, like I'm sure the Canadian studies class that wrote that draft got under fire too, right? Like, not feeling like we had the right to like, I mean, Arthur had a history of, of and as you said, TCSA folks, some, you know, trying to get in the way of the neoliberal machine takeover, but like, I'm like, oh yeah. I still remember walking downtown that week after this came out, did I ever tell you this? And Stephen, I was walking with Sarah and Stephen Brown was driving by and he literally pulled everything <laughs> We were in front of the Villa Ottawa, and Stephen Brown like pulls his car over, and like it startled Sarah and I. We were like, <laughs> he leans out of his window, his car window, and he's like, "That's how editorials should be written." And then I was like, startled. And Sarah and I were just looking at each other, and then I think you wanted to just said hi and have a good night after that. But <laughs> so that's amazing. Funny. Like so, so cute, bro. I'm like. I mean, this was a, what I was going to comment, actually. I mean, you're talking about small classes, and uh, one of the questions is about, like, the mythology of Trent. And the mythology of Trent, uh, at least as I understood, understood yeah. it, uh, is that there are, like, six people in a class, and it's really weird, and you yeah. can, like, learn, like, like what you were describing with Shakespeare. Yeah. And, uh, like, that's, a, that's what I always thought, like, Trent was. And so... Not like there aren't other programs that are, but like in terms of the humanities, I just thought it was like small classes, talking about ideas, like your professor yeah. almost running you over to like congratulate you on a tutorial, like that yeah. type of thing. So yeah, I, that's the, hopefully that is not like totally a myth and that it continues. Well, what time. ended up happening, um, as uh, according to Stephen Brown, and like I also got an email, I think I might have told you from Zaylin, very defensive, but also like I think even just rereading, like Zaylin Pollock was the person who was the head of the English department that I referenced in the article, who was like kind of gloating about tearing the department apart. And like I almost feel a bit of empathy for him in the sense that like maybe that arrogance or self righteousness was like coming from a place of wanting to stay relevant in a model that was changing. Like, he's like, okay, well, right. they, want, they want a business model. I'm going to, like, lead this, you know, change. And then, like, I wonder what the experience was like for him to read, like, the gumption of a young student who's, like, editor, like, you know, like, kind of calling him in. I don't think I called him out. I mean, it doesn't, the t my tone doesn't read as scathing. It's more speculative, I think. But, like, yeah, I wonder if, like, in naming that and outing those those decision making processes, yeah, Stevens said it pushed the changes back by at least three years, which I was glad to hear. Uh, I, but like, I'm a little confused with this, and maybe maybe it's too much to get into. But like, your pushback was from the English department that. Well, basically, they were squashing dissent. Like the like the majority, from what I remember Stephen telling me, like people were not on board with these changes, but like Pollock was making these unilateral kind of calls and then like bragging about his models and whatever, and probably trying to secure a position for himself at the same time, right? Um, but like there was a lack of transparency about what was going on to the to the point that like there just wasn't an awareness of just how much dissent from the faculty there was. 
and left. that's what pushed it, it back. Yeah, and yeah. and and so journalism, journalism <laughs> matters. The free press. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that's why Stephen, you know, I mean, Alokan's eccentricity, what pulled his car over and said why he said that so exuberantly was not that it was particularly amazing piece of writing, but that you know, you know, when institutions fail and there's that, you know, secrecy and that you know, abuse of power that isn't accountable to to the collective, then that's where the press has a history of stepping in and being and enforcing accountability, right? And so and, and that was certainly my first time ever doing that as a as a person and journalist, right? I, I don't think I'd ever been in a role before of like considering, you know what I mean, like in the yep. position of, of journalist. And so yeah, that was kind of awesome to see how that like played out to see okay like it forced accountability it, it didn't it didn't um it didn't say anything libelous um it just gestured at like okay like you're yeah and now and all these memories are coming back to me the like integrated clan thing oh man that document was lengthy Frankly, i also think journalism and student journalism is very useful in the sense that it says like I'm watching you like you you might yeah. we're watching you uh, yeah. it, it might not seem to you that's like some kind of you know second year student is gonna read your like master plan but like we're reading it and we're yeah stuff and I and think that, like we, that is why like that is why it, it it matters totally and like who more than you and I where like we couldn't even help ourselves sometimes with like being overly poetic in our writing, but like we gave gave a shit about, you know, people getting to have the same experiences we did, you know, like we gave a shit about, you know, how formative that that kind of creativity is, you know, and and the more you remove that, you know, but yeah, for the sake of, you know, accounting (laughs) or speculative accounting, I don't even know, like what, what is the university for? And it's interesting to think about that 10 years ago, because now, I mean, we all know what things look like now, I guess, uh, but. Yeah, I mean, I do and I don't. It's just, like, this is just such interesting timing with, like, starting to go to school. I mean, there's a pandemic, so everything will feel weird and different, and I won't be on campus that much. But, like, the experience of of a small humanities program is, in 10 years ago, is probably radically different except for this one does seem to be like clinging to itself but uh yeah okay what's your oh what are things nope never mind what do you say what's your favorite editorial that you wrote oh yeah um i mean so I I ha I didn't save all the copies like Jess did which was wrong if you're a journalist or editor you should save the copies if print still exists I don't even know um but another <laughs> problem is that right after the year Jess and I edited something happened with the website someone changed the website and uh, the entire ar- online archive was uh erased Decimated. yeah which is like honestly if you look up Arthur no, sorry, if you go to the Arthur website and you look up Jess and I, there's no article from either of us. There's actually no evidence that we existed as editors, which is yeah. a little frustrating, not going to lie. I think I emailed about it a while ago, like seven years ago, but 
I mean, that is when resources are depleted, obviously, you know, it's kind of hard to have someone who's like committed to digitizing things. It's just frustrating. Totally. To and then there's also the like Trent University website has the old issues up until like 2003. So basically there's just like a five or six year period that's not on the internet. So if anyone's really into archival work or digitizing, <laughs> probably get on that. Uh, but think, do you think Arthur still has the hard copies of ours? Like if they don't, I mean. I'm they, sure they I, do. I have like, that would be ridiculous if people threw that out. Like I don't see that happening. I mean, we could, I guess, uh, I mean, I know it's been renovated and demolished in the time since, but remember how we, like, we also, like, decorated? We, like, painted the story room so it was a little less progeny. Yeah. And, like, and I, then I had those, like, volume 45 wooden letters on the wall. Oh, yeah, that actually touches on my editorial, um, which I found because there's two issues of our year on some weird website called Issue with two years. Uh, and yeah, I couldn't find my articles, which is my fault. But it's loading. So, you know, talk amongst yourself. <laughs> um, I was going to say, I know we tried to get together this weekend and the weather was kind of weird, but um we should still get together with all my copies and put them all on the floor and have our own little story meeting. <laughs> oh, I would love that. Okay, so yeah. my editorial is from the just yeah, so there's a screen above me, which is why I'm looking up in a ridiculous way. Uh, well, I guess we can say this, but we're on like a Zoom video, so there might be some things where we make gestures that you can't see. That we oh can my god, see. you know what I just realized this whole what? time? I was looking at you in the tiny screen and I just realized that I somehow must have gotten like, like I was looking at a big version of myself and a little version of you. I just, <laughs> wow. Anyway. Uh, so, okay. So this editorial is from the very last um, issue of our year. And so that new ed Arthur editors had already been, um, already been elected. And oh, one thing I meant to say earlier about the editorials is that they were often written last and at like four in the morning because we always got things out super under the wire. So one of the reasons yep. why they're kind of emotional, I think, is that we're emotional people, but also just that we were like, <laughs> we wouldn't sleep for like 30 hours. And sometimes we slept under our desks with a space here because Sadler House was really cold and we put a blanket over it. So I'm like really shocked that we didn't- We didn't die in a fire. Yeah. And also take Sadler House with us. Like multiple times. <laughs> so obviously, you know, you develop a unique relationship to the space. So the cover of this, is uh there's a giant photo that says jesus loves sluts uh, and it's like a female priest holding it up and there's some kind of marching behind them and uh and it says and arthur does too anyway oh was that was that the slut walk i, I guess so but it looks like toronto not peterborough yes yeah, um, so it's slut walk toronto because i oh yeah because um they that was the year they organized the bus from peterborough to go to the slut walk oh okay okay um oh yes yeah. let's take toronto page 15. <laughs> oh i love us anyway um naturally my i don't think that my editorial has anything to do with that it's so funny because the word slut was in the editorial i just i just read it ended with the I slut think... ending <laughs> it's too bad that like it's not archived because it'd be like 
I guess it wouldn't be like this anyway, but I wish you could search slut in our entire year and like see how many times it comes up. <laughs> oh my God, yes. Um, sorry, it's really hard to read this format. Oh, you know what I forgot to mention when we were talking about hookups that we made and the story meeting conversation? Uh-huh. Was, uh, I think I was responsible for the biggest mistake of all time and had to have someone point out to me that I wrote a letter to the editor and I am the editor. <laughs> oh man, that was like the first week. And I remember like, there's so yeah. many things involved with being an art editor. Like it's not just like writing articles or it's also like designing, doing all the like stuff. Oh, we, we didn't have anyone for distribution for the first two weeks. I remember taking issues around in a wheelbarrow. Do you remember this? Like, no. Of course we, we had um, no one for distro. <laughs> Joel, yeah, Joel Young did it eventually, I think. But yeah. Uh, yeah, so anyway, so basically there's some things where I'm like, you just, and this is not necessarily a good thing, but you just don't see, like Jess' letter to the editor. Or I was like, yeah, I didn't think anything of that. But obviously that doesn't make sense. Or the other thing is there was a queer, <laughs> this is amazing. There was a Queer Lines uh, supplementary issue where I guess, I don't know, because the TQC did it, like I didn't really look over it that much. And it was the second last week, I think. It was just very, very busy. Yeah. And people were in uproar the week after and I had no idea why. Like this definitely came up in our story meeting because there was a, like a long piece about piss play and it was pretty explicit. And there's lots of sexual stuff in Queer Lines, which is fine. And uh, I don't think I would have even cared but then that was like a big issue for a while and people were extremely angry at us. And I think I had a conversation, this is a big oversight for us where I was like, did you read that? Like, did you read that article? Like, I don't think I did. Like neither of us edited like that whole section, I guess, cause we were giving agency to TQC, but it was, you know, make sure you have your eyes on everything. <laughs> uh, not that I would have canceled that. But. So funny. Okay. So. This article says nostalgia is in again. Again is <laughs> in brackets, and then there's an ellipses. And then there's a photo of Jess and I, and it's so cute. Uh, I'll send it to you later, Jess. But it says wait, wait, wait. I I literally have all the hard copies, and now I want to follow along. Okay, here it is. Oh, okay. Oh, I was proud of this cover. Yeah, it looks okay. really Oh, that was a nice division of labor. Like, you were a stronger editor. So you did more of the, like, the, like, regular layout. And then I did more of the, like, cover and uh, features. Because we would scrap that every week. Yeah, uh, I definitely learned how to do, like, some InDesign. But you were very, like, conceptual, which I totally let you run with. Yeah, you were you. Yeah, you were just a stronger editor than I was. Uh, I was definitely a little bit soft on our writers. <laughs> Hence why plagiarism happened not once but twice because apparently I was a little yeah, too nice I with my up. feedback. And then I had to fire someone. Yeah. Anyway. Okay, now sounds like we're this photo. So it says "see a suckers" and then it says "jagin," J-E-A-G-H-N. which is what our staff called us. Because we were a little ridiculous. We would like sit in on, sit on each other's laps. Well, Jess would sit <laughs> on my lap. I'm like a foot taller. Um, <laughs> anyway, and they were like, I guess it's cute. 
Uh, but then it says XOXO. And then I'm really cute wearing a headband and a cardigan. And then Jess is like a side ponytail looking like. I think pigtails actually. Pigtails? And then yeah. it's holding up like a big old Arthur stamp. Anyway, so Nostalgia is in again by Megan Kelly. That's my <sighs> name, by the way. Did we say our names? Oh, I did. Yes. So I don't yeah, we know did. I did. Okay. Uh, someone commented. <laughs> <laughs> Someone commented that Arthur is really self-referential. We italicize the shit out of Arthur, are constantly reflecting while saying, this just in. But Arthur isn't our own. The elections proved that. Only four members of our 49-member staff collective didn't vote. It was a packed room and it lasted for hours. It feels strange to write this editorial. As much as I have loved this job, the past few weeks have been a collection of countdowns and daydreams after I won't edit as I speak. A year of dream drafting emails and seeing InDesign indexes on sidewalks. To be an editor of this paper is to be a constant site of public criticism or approval. This job is challenging, a little heart-wrenching, totally absurd, but forgive me for getting overly sentimental. It's the time of year and you don't have to edit a newspaper and hand over the reins to feel it. On my walk to the office, it felt like I was floating. The warm weather, the promise of the last late night here, Sadler House. It's my home in a lot of ways. So how to reflect upon the paper when I'm also packing up, moving out. Sadler means so many things to so many people. It is a reminder of what can be accomplished when students, alumni, and community members come together. When your administration takes away something beautiful, what do you do? Coordinate, buy it back, make it yours. Sadler House isn't just my home. I do pay rent elsewhere, though I may sleep sometimes here under my desk. The site of community building, student organizing, comfort. Even though I work at a newspaper, I spend a lot of time saying, I wish I'd been writing all this down. I've loved hearing choir practices as I walk up the stairs while students are working on a group project, people are knitting or dancing or sneaking into the dining hall to use the piano. It's not weird for someone to walk into the office and say that they're about to attend a murder mystery dinner party or that a sorority formed at Trent and decided to throw a party or to see a bunch of kick-ass preteen girls lugging around guitars this, this summer at Rock Camp for Girls. It isn't strange to read a sign directing, Quakers this way, mandolins that way. Really, this place is so special and so strange, and it's hard to disconnect Arthur from it. Students, especially if they're involved in activism or university politics, especially if they work for Arthur, get criticized for being too involved, for getting too worked up. But that's what is so beautiful about this time in our lives. This participation isn't motivated by cynicism. It comes from a sense of wonder, a passion for learning, and for realizing the education we receive isn't so separate from the buildings we learn in, the bureaucracy the university is clouded in, the professors who teach us, and the livelihoods of everyone involved. Like so many students, I'm leaving Peterborough. Well, while there's been a little bit of a love-hate relationship, I have fallen in love with the city so many times that it is hard to say goodbye. To the city, the university, the paper, Sadler House. I'm so comfortable in the strange old house of activity and history that I'm not even afraid of the ghosts anymore. I was almost hoping for little Queenie to come visit on the last night, prove that ghosts existed, speak to all the stories that are passed down from students who have spent time here about the glorious creepiness of working here late at night. Little Queenie is the girl subject of a Victorian painting currently hiding out in storage, her name scrawled across in cursive. On page four, staff writer Chris Chanyan Phillips took the opportunity of his last article at Arthur to articulate his sense of wonder for our natural surroundings. Where does the water go? What is the story? 
That's what Arthur is here for in so many ways. Yes, to talking administrative policy, to writing about Trent News in a way that the newsfeed doesn't. But it's also a space to weave narratives of place into the articles we write and the issues we cover. Our first co-op student, Kevin Elson, wrote this week on page seven about on why we should save PCBS, the Downtown Integrated Arts High School from closure. Living an hour away from PCBS, oh, from Peterborough, PCBS was too far away for me to attend, much to my constant frustration. My parents went to PCBS and I grew up with the idea that that's what high school was like. Granted, it wasn't an art school and my dad was the captain of the rest, wrestling and rugby teams, so different times, but I grew up with the black and white yearbooks of an old, beautiful building teeming with history as the site of such important growing. Imagine walking downtown and not seeing those kids eating lunch in the park, playing music. It would leave this empty mark in the downtown. My cousin Rowan directed a play there, while my high school, like most in Ontario, required only one art credit. And I didn't have a choice in the matter because I didn't have an art school in my region. Kevin writes about how those possibilities help to transform teenagers, help them believe they're good for something, which is so sadly quite rare. My editorial, admittedly informed by nostalgia, was interrupted by Kevin, who came in with a friend. I told him what I'm telling you, that the article made me tear up. They talked about how about having an art collection in the building, how students respected it, never graffitied it. They talked about being right downtown, about arts education and different means of learning. They talked really caringly about this because as they said, it's not just a school. Like Trent isn't just a school, a river isn't just a river, and many buildings and bodies of water can substitute for ideas of home when they are lacking. I'm gonna cry. <laughs> <laughs> that was beautiful, and I like I felt like I my body was back in the office, and I feel like I have this memory of you reading it to me. Well, you I think we cried. Had... I think we both cried then. I think we both cried. And it's also, I did consider a few different editorials uh, because I have copies of all the papers and I think it's kind of amazing that the one I ended up choosing because I feel like the cadence of the two editorials we ended up choosing just flow together, you know, like an, a balance of poetry and, and structural concern, you know? Like, I just think that's really interesting that the, the articles we both chose of our own, you know? Oh yeah, and just fine, because I mean, as I said, my options were kind of limited because I didn't have a archive, but um, I saw, I found this and I was like, this is, is perfect. Um, because also, I mean, this will kind of touch, we'll touch on when we talk about song we selected, but like, I think this is what we tried to demonstrate in Arthur a little bit, and even though not so much to treat it as a memoir, although maybe we did end up doing that, but like that's, we, life at university can also just be extremely like poetic and intense and that's okay and that's not secondary yeah. to like your studies or or what you write about in, in Arthur for the most part. I also love I remembering that we had a co-op student. Oh my god as soon as you got there I had to hold back from being like Kevin! What <laughs> you forgot about Kevin! It was oh so sweet goodness. but I cannot remember for the life of me like what what he looks like. Um, Kevin looks like yeah. yeah, Kevin, if you're out there. Hey, Kevin. Hey. <laughs> um, but also, yeah, I mean, and the whole idea of like, oh, imagine Peterborough without PCBS and like, that's another example of something massive that's changed or shut down and that PCBS the Arts High School was closed. And there's probably uh, very many students who will walk downtown and never know that that was like, never know what it's like to see all these like, amazing really cool high school students just being able to be them 
Kevin Elson. Oh no, that was a year editorial. But I'm just looking at the page. It's got the Peter Girl, the got PCPS is like emblem. Oh. Yeah, I know, but like that's kind of that's why it's important too to have like oral narratives and oral like oral history around, or I guess also written history around totally. like oh there was a downtown arts high school and it was it was just shut down and kids were at like city council meetings crying their faces off and yeah. like the city councilors just said like you know this isn't an emotional decision this is a business decision and that's like that's horrifying you know that's horrifying and, like, that's also the role of like people at Trent Arthur and Trent Radio is to be like what the hell that's not okay that is not like yeah. human behavior and we need to fight against this and the, and the dismissal of, of youth when often youth bring the most honesty and clarity to the reality of our you know our communities you know like uh, yeah, yeah I mean there's the part of like Kevin writes about how these possibilities help to transform teenagers help them believe they are good for something which yeah. is such an intense, intense statement. And um, yeah, and it's also another example of a, a victory, uh, sorry, of a, of a loss, a failure. Like that wasn't redeemed, you know? And like Sadler House, that's such an incredible story of victory. But yes. we, and how like stories of failure and success are often wrapped up in like buildings and where we spend our time. And I think people totally. are very preoccupied or like student activists especially are like very preoccupied in buildings like um and maybe there's a criticism of that but I don't feel like doing that right now <laughs> but just like trans, well I think which is mostly so lost as well totally and I mean we could yeah that's a whole other conversation to unpack in terms of what buildings represent but I think in what you're articulating for me these feel like stories of care you know uh, whether it's what I was talking about in my editorial or what you were talking about in yours and uploaded in Kevin's voice. And I think spaces of gathering for certain bodies, whether they're marginalized bodies or disenfranchised by age, you know, youth are like some of the most disenfranchised and the largest category of disenfranchised voices. And like, what, what, to hope, what do youth have access to but gathering? And often that gathering happens in a school, you know, and like, like institutions have a complex role in that in that way uh, of forcing us together, and uh, yeah, it's just really palpable in what you wrote. You know, like I'd say I have similar sentiments at the close of me leaving Peter Girl too. Love hate, uh, best of times, worst of times, all that kind of stuff. But um, the way it felt to feel like transported back to my desk uh, and like hearing you read that off your computer was like wild the fact that I, that's like a memory stored in my body yeah you know, i felt like, it for sure Oof. Oof. Yeah. <laughs> i wish i'd been writing all this down oh. um little also i feel like that's connected to the way we ended up choosing a song which i then immediately had to put on and that that was such a like transporting feeling too yeah i was um yeah oh so i actually i Brought out, brought out. <laughs> I brought out my old MacBook, which has like the iTunes from. Oh my God! So then I was, where did it go? That was such a piece of shit. Anyway, um, so then there was some. There was like a Bear Trees song. What was what was that one guy we listened to a lot of, especially down to the wire? Rock and roll will never die. Wax mannequin. 
We did listen to a lot of Waxman again. I remember playing a Burning Hell song very loudly in the office, and Jill Stavely came in and was like, your music sucks. <laughs> it was amazing. Like, what a, what a yeah, I think one of my stress songs was definitely Rock and Roll Will Never Die. Probably because of the year that we had, and there was a lot of, you know, I, I forget what it was called, but, like, even the city itself was, was remember that cultural plan? You know, and how that guy talked to you, me, and Mike, and Dan, and Jesse after the meeting. Yeah. Like, oh, you guys should get involved in, like, in, in, like, whatever he said, like, art and culture. And, like, I don't know who said it. It was a little arrogant, but, you know, we were young. We, we are art and culture. Like, like just this <laughs> idea, this idea that we weren't already active producers. Like, it was a very patronizing comment that whatever that dude who was running that meeting said to us. When, like, meanwhile, yeah, Mike. DJ was running the cannery, you know, um, with Cormac, and uh, Dan and Jesse were hosting walk parties that were queer in all ages, and, like, you and I were running the paper. Like, we were already participating, but yet dismissed in that comment. <laughs> like, much like uh, the students of PCDS, right? Like, this idea that we're not already participating and contributing. But anyway, speaking yeah. of walk parties... <laughs> um. Yeah, I mean, I assume we'll just send this on separately, so the quality isn't, like, total. Well, do we want to say anything about it? Or about our choice? Oh, yeah. Okay, well, one thing first is that there's another, uh, another thing we played a lot with uh, Dan Mangan and Crystal Kelly. Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, and some fr Frightened Rabbit, which is very, very oh, depressing. Yeah. Oh, The Ghost is Dancing? Yes. Remember that one song? I was like, nah, 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 nah. Oh, yeah, when we won? And then we accidentally sang it and then realized it just sounded like we were like teasing them. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um anyway, L C D sound system. Okay. Yeah, I might look through and pick another one, because why not? There's two of us. Yeah, yeah. I'm only I, taking I, up two hours. Well, I was the one I was the one who suggested the one that we picked that. Oh, and decided. it's a brilliant choice. So yeah. I also saw these so, three songs by them we listened to a lot. Long Knives. Long Knives. I feel like the what Wrinkle Carver was was live, which is probably why it was on a playlist I had. Uh, I think like I'm just gonna play this. Long Knives. Yeah, this is one. really shaped that year had nothing to do with Megan or I and it was just an I almost just said an incredible year to be alive which is true a little <laughs> a little bit more zealous than I intended to say uh, it's just a great year to be alive yeah. uh, no it was just I mean it was uh in our peer group that same year as us like, sorry, you know, sorry sorry I don't know how to stop it <laughs> at the helm of Arthur was the same year that um yeah Mike Mike Degay and Cormac Calcun started the cannery art center that took over oh forgive me I forget the art supply store that it used to be and what it was called but it was a long long time you know serving the community as an art supply store and then uh instead of seeing it go under by the wayside like Cormac took it over uh, and made it a, 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 a commercial arts venue 
Uh, and they were able to make it last a year, and it hosted a lot of shows. But it was incredible to have a new art space that year in a, in a small town, especially run by people our age, because that's another thing in the arts is a lot of older oligarchies that aren't necessarily trying to make connections to youth. Um, and then, uh, uh, and then that was also coming off of the year prior, which I believe that was the year prior that uh, Dan Mirabelli and Jesse Hoffman started We Live Here Too as kind of a, a movement to amplify youth voices and, and wanting to make spaces that were all ages and safe for youth to, to party. And, and be, yeah, like safe spaces in, in Peterborough, there, there was no queer bar. And even the idea of bars doesn't, you know, welcome all ages. And so that turned into like, yeah, like a year of, of hosting what were called, you know, loft parties because they lived in the loft and they, they opened up their home uh, as, as the new space. And, uh, and those also kind of, you know, informed the current of, of that year in terms of like having a place to go. Yeah, that like, yeah, it wasn't a bar. I don't even know if there was cover. Was there cover? I don't even remember. It was just like, Dan and, oh, Jesse, Dan and Jesse would bring in these amazing acts from various places and uh, music would go to like five in the morning and it was it was incredible. It was incredible to to you know have the role with Arthur but not be the only one. Like to be a part of like a fabric of arts and cultural production that year was like just incredible. And uh, uh, I think I might have also still been on the board of uh, art space. Yep. I was on the board I was on the board for a two year a two year term. And uh, and so you know, also having that connection was was great. Um, Our space I was having some big dance parties then as well. I remember. I remember going. Well, to that was partly me. Like uh, I, I wasn't taken seriously by everyone on, and I won't say <laughs> who, but by everyone on the board. However, my attempts to contribute reflected, you know, the things that we cared about at the time. So uh, I was responsible for that New Year's party as a way to kind of to join forces with the public and brewery, which was in its infancy, and like, uh, and uh, fundraise money to help with our budget's deficit. And I think we did pull in like $2,000 while also providing a physically accessible, safe place for youth to party on New Year's Eve, you know? And like, yeah, that was a part of that year too. Oh, man, I forgot about that. And then I had to go to my dad's wedding the next day. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so hungover. I remember being like, this is ill-advised. Um, I know. But I did it anyway. But, <laughs> yeah. No, you're, like, it's interesting. I, I remember, especially when I listened to the song that we will play, I remember that those, like, big parties very viscerally. And I know it seems yeah. maybe a little, like, we had friends and we're bragging about <laughs> them. We were so popular. But, like, that's, a lot of these places you could actually just show up and you didn't have to, like, coordinate with people. No. And uh, they weren't like house parties where, I don't know, they were just, they were, they were different. And it was so wonderful, especially we'd have these like really intense weeks, like not just at Arthur and how, how exhausting that could be, yeah. but like in our, in our personal lives and like this really intense period of our lives. And yeah. then just to like be able to be around so many people and dance was huge. And that outlet wasn't there the years before. It wasn't. Like I've, talked to a bunch of friends who went to Trent but left around like 2008 or 2009 and they were like yeah. wow we really missed out on like the f dance party years yeah and it was a collective effort like I just remembered I was in a band that year also 
I don't know how I did so many things now that I was thinking about it. I was like, whoa, I was in a band. I was on the arts high school. That's oh, why yeah. I wanted to play a Bear Tree song. Oh, yeah, Bear You were in yeah. the band. <laughs> Listen, okay, uh, we had, it was a, an ever-expanding group of folks who were, quote-unquote, in the band. I was second percussionist because one percussionist was not enough. <laughs> uh, I loved it. Uh, Peterborough often made things like that. And I mean, under Lefty's leadership, so credit to that as well. But like, Peterborough made access in the arts so accessible. Like, you could just be in a band if you wanted to be in a band kind of thing, you know? Like, you could curate if you wanted to curate it. You could make art if you wanted to make art. It was a very welcoming time, I would say. And city, but, like, that time in particular felt really welcoming, I would say. Um, Yeah, and also being, like, you know, writing for and editing a newspaper during that time was pretty special, too, because we would often, you know, try to support these independent places, like the, the art gallery that opened up that... Clearly, there's no way that could have survived in this economy or anything. Uh, and then just to yeah, be able to like celebrate that and direct people there and let people know about what was happening and, and try to like bring people into the fold too, not just be like, these are exclusive events. Yeah. Uh, but to try to be like, no, please, everyone come dance. It's accessible. It's all yeah. ages. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like, I, I do remember, I mean, maybe it was perceived differently by different people, but I do remember trying to foster as much as possible an anti-clique atmosphere. Like, the idea is, like, no, like, I get feeling shy, I get feeling trepidatious, and not to pretend that we didn't have a platform and power that goes with that, but, like, wanting as much as possible to make everyone feel welcome, and, like, even the loft parties, although, you know, they were meant to, like, have be a safe space for queer youth, I can remember folks of all ages being there, like, you know, like just, yeah. Oh, yeah, like, t- a 17 to 40, like, probably? Maybe even 50s. Yeah, I don't even know why everyone's age. Like, I just, it didn't feel like you, if you wanted to go, you could go, kind of thing. And uh, anyway, one of the, one of the, the favorites of the lock parties, and I, they came back a few times, was uh, Gobble Gobble. Yeah. And my favorite Gobble Gobble oh. song was Wrinkle Carver. Because it was a very, like, bounce up and down kind of song. <laughs> and uh, it just was fun music. and uh, But also very, like, about what it means to be young. Like, I can't remember the lyrics. Like, it was, uh, they were a very poetic band, but, like, noise, you know? And, like, yeah. What I think of when I hear, I mean, I realized when I just played Long Knives that that was, like, my go-to song. Like, the other one wasn't even on my thing. But I still had the same feeling when you said, when I heard Wrinkle yeah. Cover again. I think Long Knives was your favorite. It's a little bit, I think it's a little, like, more mellow or, like, a little darker. Wrinkle Carver's just maybe more my personality, just bounce. <laughs> but, um, yeah, but when I hear, you know, I guess, either of them, I just, like, what I hear and feel still listening to it, especially because I haven't in a lot in the last 10 years, is just, yeah. like, isolation and, like, release and totally. euphoria and, like, this feeling of, like, I think... Earlier in our Trent time, it was very serious. Like, we definitely had fun, and we had really fun parties, and some dance parties, too, I suppose. But, like, there, like the a lot of that year was so joyful, which is funny, because, I mean, I was probably depressed for a lot of it. Oh, I yeah. I remember it as, like, just, yeah, euphoria, joy, like, and getting to the party, and then the sun coming on, and you, like, hugging your friends. And, and it's so lovely that after, like, how, like, the intensity of that year and how extremely challenging it could be which 
we didn't really touch on it that much, but it was, it was, uh, it was really hard sometimes. It was really uh, hard. That the fact that like when we listen to this song and when we reflect, we're like, oh, that was so amazing. Yeah. <laughs> that is and really it's, special. And it's not like my memory is erasing the hard stuff. It, if anything, the way my heart feels right now and in the conversations we've had since, uh, since Kill Stanley's invitation to do this is like, wow, like just the remarkable thing I think that, that can happen with age is like how I just have such an appreciation for Jess and Megan of the past, how our mental health challenges were pretty intense and, and to be that age, to be 25, 24, 25, like, and be like confronted with so much institutional uncertainty and it felt like often the constant threat of the removal of that poetry and that chair, you know? And, and no foreseeable was, future. And, and no foreseeable economic future. Like we were, the, we were the ones, our generations were the ones hit hardest by um, the 2008 recession. Like, because everything we'd been trained to do and, and, and pursue just like all of a sudden evaporated. But like much like I feel like is probably echoed now in, in kids dealing with the pandemic and imagining and building towards a future that now is entirely different. You know, like it's it's interesting to be having these conversations now because I definitely see an echo, you know, with 2008. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's some kind of weird freedom we got in being like, well, nothing's going to work out. <laughs> <laughs> kind of? Like we uh, said, not really. It was also stressful. But yeah, this stressful. like sounds like you just feel like you're like oh, on the precipice of something, you know? Oh, like, this might be a good time to, I mean, I'm sure we should wrap up soon, but I feel like this is connected to things we did want to talk about a little bit anyway. <laughs> like like uh, Egypt, right? Like and how we didn't yeah. realize we were heading into a very unique editorial year to be involved in media at a time where media that year, media forever changed. Like the idea that I was touching on earlier about being trained to like be unbiased is like that that eroded, that proved to be the fallacy that I that I perceived it to be. And 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 people were, you know, starting to, you know, create their own media. And it wasn't maybe taken seriously at first because that's how institutions go. But uh, I still remember, yeah, it was like Valentine's Day when you and I stayed up all night. That was the that was when the uprising happened in Egypt, and we just ended up staying up all night watching Al Jazeera. I don't think it was because we were like necessarily behind, but I think we were just like, "What is happening?" Like it was just mind blowing. Like it it changed everything. The way people were mobilizing. Not that mobilizing was new, but like like Twitter and and how social media became this way to kind of gather on mass across maybe political belief even and just revolts and then Wisconsin, you know, happened a bit after and like all these things, all these changes and political moments were happening and we just happened to be at the helm of a newspaper where we given ourselves ultimate freedom, you know, to say whatever we wanted about, about and then all these things started happening and, and the world was just shaking. And uh, anyway, that's, uh, that I think maybe didn't affect me quickly, but over time, I, I think, I was forever changed by being in that role at that time, like that role that time, you know, and like witnessing things fall and change, you know, in that way and in and in various media, you know, like I think the editorial I wrote on my birthday did reference like McLuhan and, and try to make sense of what was happening, you know, and like and 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 that this had been critically by the likes of like 
Marshall McLuhan, uh, William Gibson, like a lot of folks, and like Ursula K. Le Guin, and like just a lot of people have kind of predicted this like intersection between media and politics. And, and we were there in the hot seat, you know, <laughs> like, like front row. <laughs> yeah, and then we almost uh, bought tickets to Egypt because after. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, well, after, like, I think this was a while after, actually, the tourism industry was really suffering. We were like, oh, we should go. And then um, and then we remembered that we had a newspaper to run and that we had no <laughs> <laughs> I know. I think we, we got caught up in the fantasy of, like, on the ground, recording. <laughs> like, no one asked Justin Megan to go to Like, our, our Egypt correspondent. <laughs> no one cares about us. <laughs> We cared. That was enough. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. I mean, I think we're probably um, we're probably good. If anyone like, let's please see, like, write the us whole way through. <laughs> just like, even if it's, ah, I was gonna say even if it's negative, and I'm like, no, I can't handle that right now. But uh, anyway, well, thanks to Jill Stapley and Trent Radio for giving us a chance to to do this it's very wild to like reminisce i know this is not the point of this archival project but you know it's like 10 years later i live in like this the east end of toronto with my boyfriend <laughs> like it's such a it's i mean obviously that's a wonderful thing but it's really nice to think about dance party Time. totally and I live in the West End, which in what was once our shared apartments, but I've now lived here for eight years and have become a bit of a den mother, just like managing a household. And like, like, yeah, I probably saw this coming and have like, you know, given accessible housing to various queer and trans folks over the years. And like, yeah, that's kind of, I don't know. I, I think, I guess one final thought I have is like feeling grateful to Peter Girl, like Jill Stanley, but also Peter Girl for being so often ready or like desirous uh, to like look and look at the past and look into the past. And it reminds me of the first uh, art show that I was a part of, not only at the art gallery of Peterborough, but since like leaving Peterborough, that Finn Leach invited me to be a part of called From uh, War Are. And the concept itself is very similar to what this feels like in terms of like inviting me in as somebody that was there but is no longer there. And like, and how Peterborough has a very transient feeling, like you either never leave, or you leave, but the memory of you is there, or maybe the time that you were there, you weren't maybe seen as much as you're seen now. It was a cool like group show on the on the ramps in the in the gallery, but it was like probably my first, and it was an emotional time, uh, my first time returning to Peterborough as like a you know adult practicing artist, like after having left, as you know. A journalist, you know, and so I feel grateful to to folks like Fran and Jill for continuing that legacy of you know the past and the present, the future in Peterborough. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> also, I should, one thing is that after my editorial, I'm like goodbye Peterborough forever. It's like six months later I moved back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I never moved back, but I I have shown art in Peterborough twice now, like at the art gallery in Peterborough twice now, which is kind of wonderful in how it feels, you know, to get to return to a place. But I never showed art there while I lived there, so that's kind of funny. <laughs>
anyway. Yeah. Well, my family's there, or a lot of my family's there. So it's kind of funny that it's just transformed into like a family space. Totally, totally. And then for me, like a workspace. Remember the time I was at the Yelly that very weekend? I was deinstalling that that work, and then you walked by me with Dave. Yeah. You didn't even see me. Yeah. <laughs> that was so funny. Anyway. Yeah. That's okay. a long story. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we should okay. wrap up. Okay, let's tap out and then see if did you just say tap out. You said tap out. <laughs> oh, I said I said I said wrap up. <laughs> tap out. I thought we said it at the same time. I was like, whoa. whoa. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm gonna check you later and uh, make sure these recordings worked. Okay. But if they didn't, and then we were to do it again, it would probably be like a reasonable 25 minutes. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, bye, Peter Brown. <laughs> bye. <laughs>